you're listening to the GamesIndustry.biz podcast. I'm James Batchelor, and today we have another audio version of a session from our GI Live online event. Entitled Let's Get Physical, Why You Should Consider Boxed Products, this is an interview with IM8Bit founder John Gibson and explores the demand and opportunities for merchandise and collector's items, as well as boxed versions of digital games. Let's hand over to Chris. Hello and welcome back to GI Live Online. I'm Chris, I run gamesindustry.biz and we've got a slightly different session for you uh, right now. During this week, you're going to hear a lot about uh, making your games more successful, publishing and uh, how to be more successful with your games and studios. But there is another rapidly growing area of the business that might be of interest to you. And that comes in the physical space, both in terms of games merchandise, but also physical versions of your titles. Uh, Contrary to popular belief, it is not just the domain of the big AAA giants. To talk us a bit about that, uh, we've got the, we've got one of the geniuses behind I Am 8-Bit, uh, John. Um, so hello, uh, John. Welcome to the show. Hello. Uh, I was incredibly nervous to do this interview because uh, I haven't had a haircut in over a year. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Let's not talk about haircuts. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, as long as we're not talking about hair, I can answer all your other questions. I'm thinking of putting like a warning site alert before the videos just to say, you know, uh, uh, apologies in advance for, for haircuts. Um, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> um, for those who perhaps don't know um, I am 8-Bit and, and what you do, and why don't you tell us about how you built the business? Because it sort of has an interesting journey, right? Uh, it certainly does. Uh, it, it's it's one of those stories that it almost doesn't make sense uh, in, until it makes sense uh, because we we followed this path that you can't really design and learn a lot of stuff along the way. Uh, we're 16 years old uh, this year, uh, being 2021. 20, and when we started, uh, we were definitely not doing most of the things that we're doing now. But the through line is, is, is pretty obvious. Uh, I may be began in 2005 as an art show. Uh, it was the world's first pop culture themed art show uh, and the theme being video games. Uh, I was just a, a animation writer working for like Cartoon Network, Nickelodeon, uh, Disney Channel at the time. Previous to that, I was a, a video game journalist uh, writing for magazines when uh, when those things existed. You know, the, the, the paper uh, with printing on it and screenshots uh, that were uh, of terrible resolution. <laughs> and uh, I I knew a lot of artists through animation and I knew a lot about games and the game industry through, you know, my previous life as a journalist uh, and just saw those two things colliding in the context that people loved games and artists, especially on like post-it pads and around the studios uh, would just doodle and, you know, love things like Mario and Donkey Kong and Zelda and Sonic and you would just see the the culture permeating in this this way that was really beautiful uh that wasn't really celebrated like all you would see is is posters in nintendo power uh, and that's about as far as video game art went uh, in terms of what you could put on your wall so i thought what a novel concept it would be to give all these young artists who love games uh, um, a showcase a, a medium in which to to you know share that with the world versus just disposing of them on uh you know, post-it pads and, you know, making it just studio father that no one else could see. Uh, that grew into something that was, you know, very unexpected, but also a, a, an analog for everything that we do at IMA Bit. Uh, we did several more IMA Bit art shows uh, and you'll see in, in our merchandise from vinyl records to physical games to anything else we do that, that very artistic 
slant, that, that interpretation. Uh, because for us, it's important to celebrate universes uh, and the, the very notion of merchandise and putting things onto the world should, you know, from our perspective, contribute and, and expand mythology versus uh, just carbon copying and, and replicating it. Uh, along the way, uh, as uh, the IME Art Show brand grew, uh, I met my business partner, Amanda White, uh, who is not on this call, uh, but I will talk about her like she is. Uh, she, uh, she came from film production. Uh, she was making movies and TV shows. And when we met, uh, we were coming from very different worlds, uh, but we, we had a, a common language in appreciating you know, artistic things, uh, be it visuals and, and paintings and graphic design, be it music, uh, be it video games. Uh, you know, our interests were, were very varied, but in the middle, you had this kind of creative uh, uh, explosion. Uh, when we put our heads together, we came up with really good ideas, and and it you know apply her business acumen and and you know the things that I do well, and we had a business that made sense to us, but it it wasn't really something that the the world had yet, uh, and I, I can get into all the various trappings, uh, but. At the end of the day, IMAP, it's always just been this very nimble, flexible creature that, uh, you know, is, is very much positioned in evolution. You know, like we're always trying to do new things. And you know, our MO at the end of the day is if we're getting bored, uh, that means we're becoming complacent and we should, you know, veer off that course and try something new. Uh, so every touch point in the business has, has been driven by the factor that like me and Amanda are very much uh, curious people, but also uh, people that are easily stifled by just cookie cutter approaches to things. Uh, so we're always trying to make things personal and specific and nuanced. And to us that, that brings a flavor that's, that's the identity of IMA. And this is the the thing is that you sort of move, you're sort of known now for your things like the vinyls and 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 things like that. But you sort of just stumbled upon this sort of by accident, right? You sort of were is it, is it that you saw people were selling your your PR merchandise online for quite a lot of money? Is that right? Yeah, I mean the the first evolution of the company uh, from art show was uh, Nintendo, PlayStation, Capcom, all of these companies. Uh, coming to us to recruit us for press kits and mailers and uh, little little things here and there because they saw our ability to, uh, you know, quote unquote, uh, tap into that authentic uh, quality. Uh, and for us, that's just being a fan of the thing and, and seeing that there's unique and wonderful languages uh, and opportunities in different worlds. Uh, and if you take the time to speak that language fluently uh, as a fan, yeah, it, it's you can do so many cooler things than just working off of key art and uh, playing in kind of the standard style guide universe of things. So as we started doing these press kits and, and then those grew into community events uh, of which one of our first was street fighter club. Uh, but then we started doing a lot of stuff for Bethesda. Uh, we, we did Wolfenstein and, and dishonored and a lot of other cool events Uh we we followed this practice of wanting to give fans something on their way out uh, that that concert T-shirt that you get uh, 
after you've seen a band that you really love, uh, you know, what is the equivalent of that for, for a video game event uh, for the community? Uh, so we would just always make tchotchkes. Uh, we would make swag that you would just get because you showed up. Uh, we weren't selling it. We were just giving it to you as part of the budget for the events. Uh, you know, same with mailers and, and you know, the, the press kits we would send out. Like no one was buying those. Those were, those were clearly just created for the promotion of this particular game. Uh, but what started happening was people would sell those on eBay uh, for a lot of money. <laughs> it was like almost shocking when uh, we would get emails uh, and people would point that out. And initially uh, we had a few publishers uh, and partners that would be like, we need to take these down. And it's like, well, you can't stop people from selling things like that. They acquired fair and square. Like it, there's an economy for it. And that's, that's really interesting. That's, in fact, bolstering your stock in a lot of ways too. So you should just leave it alone. Don't issue takedown notices. That's crazy. Uh, but for us, we were noticing that the, the things we were making were also categories that didn't exist in merchandise. Uh, you know, before we really got into the racket, uh, you would you would see apparel, you would see plushies, you would see some basics, but uh, the stuff we were making was really highly customized in particular. Uh, and it's it's stuff that you couldn't normally sell in a global retail marketplace because it was it was too specific in a way. Uh, you know, one one instance was uh, for Wolfenstein uh, when Bethesda bought it. Uh, that was one of their first games out of the gate uh, from the studio. Wonderful game, uh, tons of legacy. But what Bethesda did with reviving it was uh, was a lot of really clever things, including uh, hijacking. Uh, the idea of 1960s American pop music and uh, re-recording things like House of the Rising Sun and all these like really epic, iconic songs in German. Uh, and, you know, they, they were using them in trailers and advertising and you can hear them in the background when you play the game. But we're like, well, what if we did a period authentic uh, release of these songs on records uh, on 45s? Uh, but didn't put any Bethesda branding or I made the branding or, or anything of the sort and made them feel of the era. And so we made three of those and we gave them away at the door. You would randomly get one of the three versions. Uh, you were not guaranteed all three. Uh, and those things were selling like crazy and being traded on the aftermarket. And we did a couple other releases uh, along the way. Our, our very first was Tron Evolution uh, for the video game. Uh, in response to the Tron Legacy movie coming out. And that we only made a few hundred of as a mailer. And it sold for upwards of like a thousand or 1200 bucks on the aftermarket for a single LP. And so you look at those two examples and you start to realize like, wow, like people want video game soundtracks on wax. Uh, so we just started approaching companies uh, to license <laughs> uh, video game soundtracks, and we were laughed out of the room on so many occasions. And then after a lot of conversations of convincing people that like this could be worthwhile, uh, a few companies took a shot on us, uh, primarily uh, Devolver with Hotline Miami 2, uh, PlayStation with Journey, uh, and a few other choice releases, Rare, uh, were amongst some of our first and, uh, and then we started proving it out and, and proving there was a market for those kinds of things. But previous to that, there simply wasn't. You would, you would see independent composers uh, releasing vinyl, but at the end of the day, uh, it, it just wasn't something that anyone really thought of as 
a place to make money. And, and that's the hardest thing with licensing. If you're doing official merch, you have to fill out these, uh, these forms that project uh, what could happen uh, in success. And, you know, like we're, we're basically saying we'll sell 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 more of these things. And you're paying sometimes advances or you're guaranteeing uh, that a certain amount of revenue will come in. But from our reality, like we couldn't do any of that because we just didn't know. We just, we had a hunch that it would work. Uh, and oftentimes that's, that's the, the fun of entering the marketplace with something new and wacky. Uh, same thing with physical games, like uh, is so many signs pointed to physical games being on the outs. Uh, but we took the approach of, you know, this premium collectible idea of physical media, uh, plus also understanding that some people don't download games still actually a vast majority of people don't download games still, uh, and there is a, a incredibly large bucket to uh, to service that isn't just the the people that have insane broadband. Uh, <laughs> you know, like we have to think about like not everyone lives in New York and Los Angeles and and these giant metropolises that have you know you know one gig up down. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I, I analyze the markets part of my job at GamesIndustry.biz, and <clears throat> a lot of people talk about the digital switch. Um, and there's the digital market share is increasing dramatically, particularly over the pandemic here. But actually, physical game sales in most major markets increased last year. And their share of the market got smaller. But actual, but it's still a multi-billion-dollar industry. Physical games. It's not like say, ah, oh, it's all digital now. It's really not. It's like it's not even nearly. It's huge. You don't just cut that off. Um, you can't really. It would be massively damaging to the games business. So um, uh, you're right. Um, in that, uh, you know, we can we can sort of ignore. You can just, you know, it's there. There's an audience there, and, and that audience loves this stuff. I mean, I love this stuff. I've got it around me. Um, well, I mean, what have you've been doing this a while now? But what have been sort of your standout successes? What sort of what's worked for you? Uh, a lot of things, <laughs> but it, it's it is that evolution uh, in a way. Uh, you know, one of the one of the more recent successes we've had is Ori and the Will of the Wisps uh, in brokering uh, a partnership with Microsoft to, and Moon Studios to be the, the publisher, both digitally and physically on Switch. Uh, it, was, it was a nice milestone for, for all of us. Uh, and we'd worked with Moon for many years on, on the Ori vinyl soundtrack uh, for Blind Forest. Uh, when Wisps was coming out, we already had the license for, for that. But when when we started talking about what this this could look like, it presented a lot of different opportunities for for kind of leveraging all the things that we learned up until that point. So you, you look at like the art show, for instance, uh, everything we do in vinyl uh, applies to like what we were doing in those art shows starting 16 years ago, where we we commission artists to interpret worlds and brands. So, you know, the Ori vinyl is, is artists representing their vision of Ori uh, in celebration of something that they love. Uh, you look at a community events that we've done for like Capcom, Bethesda, Nintendo, all these companies. And all of that was about putting people into the world, like, uh, you know, dosing them into this, this kind of surreality in a way, uh, if, if only for a couple hours or an evening, and what we tried to start capturing, especially with that Ori Collector's Edition, was how do we bring that experience 
into someone's home and into someone's life in a more permanent way, uh, especially since, you know, in the state of pandemic, you know, you can't go and do things. And, and it really started uh, changing our perspective uh, or evolving our perspective on, on how we approach products and, and how meaningful they can be to someone uh, if you do them right. And so that's where you get the transforming box, the stained glass art piece. Uh, it's not it's not junk. Uh, you know, quote unquote, uh, it's not stuff that you're just going to toss in the garbage uh, or is going to get lost in a drawer. It's stuff you're going to proudly display uh, as part of your life. Uh, and it's beautiful things that even the box itself is something that that looks nice and can be used and, and shown off in a way that you can be proud of this thing you you love as part of this community of Ori uh, in, in physical games. Uh, you know, we, we do a lot of that uh, and we've done cartridges for Super Nintendo and Nintendo uh, in celebration. We've done modern consoles. Uh, but one of the things that that we see as an opportunity uh, in direct to consumer sales versus retail uh, is retail. You have to be more on the nose. Uh, you have to kind of explain what the product is, the, the customer, because it might be their first time discovering it on that shelf. Whereas direct to consumer is an opportunity to. Uh, speak the secret language, if you will. Uh, you don't have to be so on the nose, one-to-one. -one. Uh, you can create different aesthetics for the, the cover sheets and the packaging that doesn't have to have a you know verbose product description of all the gameplay features because the customer you're capturing is already a fan of the thing. So you don't have to like overdo it with explanation. Uh, you know, you take all of those things and you look at Ori and it, it kind of draws on that 16 years of experience all in like a singular box or like a vinyl soundtrack. Uh, and for us, that's, you know, not only a financial success in terms of sales, uh, because we also took Ori to retail uh, with our, our buddies at Skybound and have sold a, a crazy amount of units uh, to people who normally wouldn't be discovering Ori if they had to download it. Like it, it's about spreading that love in a way that's, uh, you know, often ignored uh, the, the power of retail uh, is much more about, you know, grabbing people where they buy games and consume media and exposing them to things uh, that they otherwise wouldn't discover at all. And then direct to consumers about you know, celebrating for the fan, this beautiful uh opportunity to give them something really special that is meaningful to their life. You know, someone who's played two games for hours and hours and hours in the Ori universe, they have an emotional connection to that game. And it's, it's our duty to give them something really special. Uh, so for us, I would say the most recent success uh, is kind of taking all of our experience and putting it into that, that mm -hmm. kind of ensemble, if you will. Uh, we're really proud of it. You know, Moon and Microsoft and, and everyone, it was yeah, historic in a lot of ways. Amazing, amazing. I'm like, because um, my I can understand where you're coming from because I'm a, I'm a growing up. I was a big fan of rare, rare video games. Just um, not not uncommon video games. Video games from the developer developer rare. So um, things like you, you know, your perfect dark thing with the <clears throat> the cheese necklace and all this kind of stuff. It all it means something to me, which wouldn't mean to anyone else unless you play perfect dark and know that game intimately you wouldn't understand why there's a piece of cheese on the front of that vinyl and it's um and it's uh whereas i do <laughs> so it's a uh, it's a uh, it, yeah it feels like a feels like they made that for me um rather than uh, anyone just stumbling across it um even though i think it does look quite stylish um uh but um i'm sort of going off there a little bit um well, 
Well, I mean, to the, to the, the point of like the, the things that are meaningful to you personally versus like if, you know, your, your parents or your siblings or whoever walked into the room and saw that perfect earth vinyl, if they didn't have that same experience, it would just be like a, a vinyl. Uh, but when you look at packaging and you look at really good design and, and the stuff that really excites us is, is the nuances. Unfortunately, uh, paying attention to nuances and details and, and hiding little Easter eggs and, you know, wink, wink, nod, nods, uh, it takes a lot of time. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of hard work to, to really land on those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And I think at least for us, that's what, uh, makes I am a bit. Uh, releases special is that we we take that time uh it's not recommended uh because it 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 limits your ability to focus on things and you can only put out so many releases so when you look at us in comparison to you know our our competitors uh we would argue that we don't really have competitors in the traditional sense because we've chosen to focus very specifically on this kind of thing and it's we think it's very special to how we approach the world and look at things uh, it is not the only way to do it and it is not the best way to do it always uh, depending on what you're looking for uh and and i think that's important to talk about when you're when you're talking about merchandise and 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 you know what's out there and available is our way is you know as one way of doing it uh and there's a, a vast other approaches out there that uh, that are interesting and cool too uh, it just yeah. depends what you want in your life how how is this site how is this physical space thing physical stuff and i'm not just talking vinyls but physical products or anything anything else you've done how has it grown for you over the years i take it it's got you you've you talked one of your biggest successes one of your most recent releases so i'm guessing it's getting bigger and bigger every time but but <clears throat> how has it grown uh we've, we've been lucky enough through the years that like growth has always occurred uh and you know you could say that that's like categories opening up uh you know, we, we do physical games, we do vinyl, we do other merchandise, uh, you know, we, we do art prints and shows and, and there's a lot of different categories we play in. And, you know, from our first vinyl release to now, just the market in general has grown, uh, you know, from our first physical games release to now, the, the, the market and awareness has just grown tremendously. So uh, it's, it's all in an upswing and it continues to be, but uh, if we're talking numbers, because uh, <laughs> that's that's the more interesting stuff, uh, even just direct to consumer uh, for 2020 from 2019, we grew like 300 percent in sales overall, which is kind of crazy to say, uh, because we you don't even realize it's happening because at, at the end of the day, you're still doing what you're doing. You're just doing more volume of the things that you're doing. So it's when you look back at those analytics you're like wow like that's really cool uh but it doesn't really change our perspective it it perhaps uh opens a few doors in terms of the kind of things we can manufacture uh because it's it's less niche in the sense that if you're only making 500 or a thousand of something it's harder to do certain kinds of things uh but if you're making you know five thousand ten thousand of something you know Plus, uh, you can, it opens up the, your manufacturing abilities a little bit. Uh, and then when you look at the global retail landscape, uh, it's in the last couple of years, we've, we've dove in headfirst uh, to try to kind of explore what that looks like. So in the case of Untitled Goose Game, for instance, uh, we have our direct consumer uh, releases, which are like our eco-friendly packaging, uh, trying to innovate that space. Uh, but the limitations of, eco packaging are that the supply chains suck 
you know, it's it's incredibly expensive to do eco things right now because uh, if you're going to do them in a global landscape, the materials don't exist in all the places they need to. Uh, and you would have to ship all of those materials into different markets. Uh, and in effect, you're actually wasting more energy and polluting more by uh, by oh. doing that. <laughs> so you, when you see, like, you ask why people haven't done eco-packaging in a, in a broader way, and that's why. And, and it's something we're trying to change. But we, we took advantage of that scenario to try to prove out, like, this would be really cool as a test model on title Goose Game direct consumer eco packaging. Uh, but also, Goose Game was very zeitgeisty. Uh, it was clearly a phenomenon. Uh, kids were dressing like geese for Halloween, uh, which, you know, when, when you get Halloween costumes, you know you've, you've got a hit on your hands. Uh, so we, we partnered with, uh, with our friends at Skybound uh, to go more mass retail globally. Uh, we saw the potential, and, and so did House House and Panic. And uh, if we look at uh, Goose Game and we look at Pathless and we look at Ori and the, the things we did in retail in 2020 versus 2019, uh, we grew 2,300%. Uh, and that just shows you that physical is not just like this thing that is a dying breed, but in fact is a burgeoning thing. And you know, even retail uh, from that perspective, like a lot of people thought it was going to die in the last couple of years. Uh, retail is not going anywhere uh, because people shop where they shop and not everyone buys from Amazon. Not everyone goes to GameStop. Not everyone like you're buying your stuff wherever you might be in the world. And that store is your go to. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's where you're picking up stuff. And that's not just like singular in approach. That's toilet paper. That's groceries. That's that's everything. So. Uh, you got to think about like all, all that thing in a, in a global landscape and, and not just the stores that, you know, uh, and it, if you play all those regions and you play all those countries and, and, you know, get games into those places, it it's, it, you can do tremendous numbers and you can share games with a lot more people. Uh, it's hard. <laughs> uh, it's not easy to, to, you know, go into all of those countries and localize and do that. It, it, it It's a lot of fucking work, but at the end of the day, uh, sorry for swearing, but it, it is a lot of work. <laughs> At the end of the day, uh, you know, it, it's valuable because, you know, games do make people happy and people want to discover games, but you need to get the games in front of them for them to discover too. Uh, that's half the battle. Mm -hmm. Wow. It's, there's actually an independent games retailer in my town, just, just five doors down from me. As a, so it's, that's a... Well, and if you look at all the independent game retailers uh, across the world, uh, and then you look at all the chain stores like the Targets and the Best Buys and and the Amazons and, and you know anything like I can name you a thousand different retailers depending on what country you live in. If you add them all up, even if all of them are just buying five or ten or twenty or a hundred units, uh, it's a lot of stores. And the same thing goes for vinyl records. It's like boutiques you know, little local shops do make a big difference uh, if if each of them are buying a couple copies of something and, and that proliferates. Uh, I mean, it, it, to help you kind of like understand the, you know, the landscape of what direct consumer versus uh, what retail can look like, uh, you know, a, a general release uh, for like a small indie title, uh, you can expect if there's enough of an audience, like three to 5,000 units, for a 
typical release. Uh, sometimes more, sometimes less, really depending, but that's your average. Uh, for a retail release, you're selling in the hundreds of thousands uh, of copies. Uh, so it, it's dramatic. And, and if you look at that from a perspective of, you know, revenue to the developer and, and, and publisher, like that's tremendously helpful uh, mm-hmm. like to future games and future prospects. Uh, and that's just the physical game aspect of it. That's not other merchandise too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what, are there certain types of games that work or perhaps better saying don't work or genres that don't work it or do work in this sort of space? What, what would you, what have you found? It's, it's uh, this, this is by no means scientific. Uh, this is, <laughs> this is things that we've noticed uh, through time. Uh, but it, console gamers uh, from our perspective and from what we've noticed habit wise uh, buy the most physical merch uh, in, and we think that's because if you're a console gamer, you're typically playing lots and loads of different games. Like you're not just fixated on one game for the year. You're playing a whole bunch of them. So therefore, like your interests are wider. Uh, there's a wider swath of uh, things available to you uh, for you to you know be interested in or consume. Uh, and you're just more prone to... To, in a convention or on Amazon or wherever you might be, like find things that appeal to you uh, just by basis of you just having this more well-rounded perspective. Uh, when you look at PC and the economy there, it's uh, it's much more lifestyle focused uh, because you are typically playing one game, a couple games for a much longer period of time. Uh, if you look at like League of Legends or you look at World of Warcraft or you know Overwatch or any of this stuff, uh, you're playing hundreds of hours. You're not just playing something for 10 hours, beating it and walking away. And you're also investing a lot in your rig and you know, the accessories that go along with it. So uh, you're less prone to consume merchandise from all these different places and hone it into like a singular thing. Uh, and your disposable income might be spent on things like accessories too, and not just you know merchandise uh, for that particular game. So it's a slightly different mindset, but you know, it's still a broad and wide audience. Uh, for us, the the one thing that we haven't really cracked super well and is difficult is mobile. Uh, and the only thing we can really point at is, you know, mobile is it's free to play typically, or even in the mobile premium model, uh, it's it's really inexpensive compared to a console or PC. Uh, so the, the consumer habits are different. Like you're, you, you, no one's as conditioned to see value in extending the, the experience or mythology uh, into merchandise. Uh, you, you look at Angry Birds, for instance, and that's one of those rare mobile feats that, you know, extended into plushies that you could buy at 7-Eleven or, you know, other convenience stores. It wouldn't really wide. I can't speak to the successes of that merchandise, but, uh, you know, the fact that it went so broadly is interesting, but it's also very rare. Like it's, it's really hard to convert mobile players into people who will actually buy ancillary merchandise. You know, we've, we've worked with brands like Monument and Valley and, you know, we've done well by that, but it's not broad. It, it's a very specialized market uh, that you're funneling into like smaller and smaller funnels at that point. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and then, yeah, mobile. A hundred million players, two hundred million players in mobile doesn't mean you're going to sell, you know, a million T-shirts. 
uh, in fact, it's it's much harder because there's not really a direct connection to to that experience that you play for five minutes, ten minutes, to wanting to extend uh, into your life that same thing. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Well, I'm, I don't think that's. I'm not surprised, but yeah, it's nicely, nicely yeah. articulated. Yeah, again, not scientific, not scientific. It's just stuff we've observed, but it's yeah, it's interesting nonetheless. Yeah. What. Because we've got a lot of indies watching this, you know, and they might be considering physical. But I know from my experience watching this play out, the physical products tend to follow quite a long time after the digital release, or shortly after the digital release, or, or whenever. Um, is that the right way around of doing it? Should they be thinking about it earlier? Uh, it's a that's a catch twenty <laughs> two. Uh, our general uh, thesis on this is: you need an audience to sell merchandise. Uh, and if you don't have an audience, then there's no one to buy your merch. Uh, we've been in multiple scenarios and experimented through the years. Uh, typically, our recommendation is uh, let the game get its sea legs, uh, let it grow an audience uh, digitally, see what the appetite for the audience is, and uh, and start slow. Like like don't overwhelm, don't make too much stuff. Uh, all at once you can phase things and tier things uh, like for us we find that physical games and vinyl are what we call our anchor products uh, they're the higher price point things uh, but also the the most kind of obvious things that that people are seeking uh, when it comes to merchandise from us uh, you know it's different with with other you know competitors but then you can grow from there it's like you you test the waters and you you release a physical game, uh, you release a vinyl soundtrack, you see where the audience is and you know what their appetite is. And then maybe phase two, phase three, you can release an art print or a plushie or a t-shirt. But the, the thing you don't want to do, and, and this is what we call the, the in and out uh, menu uh, when, when we talk about branding and, and merch, in and out is successful because you don't have a lot of choices. You have a hamburger, you have a cheeseburger, you have a couple of flavors of milkshakes, you got fries and that's basically it. Like you don't really have a lot of customization options outside of that. Uh, but you look at McDonald's and they have everything and it's like the, the efficiency of in and out is prolific in the fact that uh, they move people really quickly, but they still provide you a quality product. Whereas McDonald's is, moving people quickly, but they're not giving you the best food. <laughs> uh, and if you spread yourself that thin, you have to start making sacrifices. Uh, you start uh, choosing materials that aren't the best. You you hold inventory that has to serve multiple purposes. And you just you just start making decisions uh, that, that probably aren't the best for your fans. Uh, and then you also risk taking a bath on some of those things too. Uh, because if you have too many choices, uh, what tends to happen is uh, people just won't make any choice at all. Uh, they don't, they won't buy anything. If, if you're stuck with all this indecision, you might just end up getting distracted and walk away. Uh, so it, it's better to grow an audience and grow that appetite than it is to overwhelm people right at first. Um, this takes a lot of patience. And, you know, the thing that every developer wants to do is make stuff right away because you know, making stuff is fun and it's cool to have t-shirts and plushies and all those things, but you need people to want to have those and like bring them into their life. Uh, and the most important thing to remember is that uh, 
merchandise can extend the life cycle of a game exponentially. And it's like, you should look at merch as uh, a beat on your marketing calendar, like time and time again. So it's like, there's no such thing anymore as like a game coming out and just dying on the vine. Uh, you know, look at Among Us and, you know, years later that game got discovered and became a massive hit. Uh, and there's so many stories like that where a game comes out and the audience finds that game six months later, a year later, two years later and explodes. Uh, it's not like movies where, uh, you know, you have the theatrical window and your, your first weekend, the box office goes bust and you're a bomb and you're like labeled a bomb for the, the rest of existence. Uh, games have this amazing ability to continue to introduce themselves to, to new audiences and new players. Uh, so it's best to remember that you got a lot of years to release stuff and you don't have to do it mm. all up front. Merchandise, I guess, can be, a, can be another discovery down the line, right? So, you know, it can, it, oh, it's these products and it can bring in a new audience and it could be that trigger for, um, for, a. Uh, uh, more success, I guess. Um, yeah. And I mean, Amanda's uh, son, when he was like two or three, we were in the airport and uh, he, he wasn't really exposed to mass media yet. Uh, he, he wasn't a kid that, that was staring at screens all day long. And there was this little girl about his age, like sitting uh, in the terminal and she was holding a Mickey Mouse doll. And, and keep in mind, Amanda's son doesn't know who Mickey Mouse is, nor has he been to Disneyland or anything of the sort. But he walked up and snatched the Mickey Mouse doll from this little girl's hands and like ran away with it um, merely because he liked the design of it. Uh, so there, there's this other reverse end of merchandise that, you know, so you can like something and not even know where it came from sometimes too. Uh, and I, I think that happens with games and I, I think that happens with uh, vinyl records or plushies or anything where, you know, you can hear the theme song to Ori, for instance, and love it and not even know it was from a video game. And like, those are kind of the magical moments of discovery too, where uh, people who uh, self-label themselves as I'm not a gamer. I don't like video games. Uh, we often find that they're exposed to things that we're doing through a friend uh, and they get into it because they're like, oh, I didn't know video game soundtracks could be good like this. And it's like, that's super insulting to anyone who makes video game music uh, as if like there's this like specialized core of individuals that that specifically try to make the music so nerdy that it only appeals to people who know how to press buttons frenetically. It's like it's music. And, you know, like that's, that's part of the joy for us is, you know, exposing people to, to all these wondrous things that are just well-designed, beautiful artifacts. Uh, and it doesn't even matter that they're from a game most of the time. Mm -hmm. That's just like almost a bonus. Uh, yeah. But, you know, it's one of the things we try to put into our products at the very least is, yeah. you know, making sure they're cool to people, even if they don't identify as someone super nerdy that would play video games. <laughs> I remember when I was a kid and my best mate, when I told him I was playing this Pokemon game, he went, oh, the card game. Um, so, you know, <laughs> it's, you know we've, all, we've all heard of those examples. Well, I mean, well, I'm, I'm conscious of the time. We've spoken for ages, but I've got a couple of questions I want to... Uh, yeah, absolutely. And one of them was um, physical, obviously, there's risk involved in physical, and you've touched upon it a little bit in that um, you have to manufacture these things, distribute these things, you know, there, there's the costs involved. How do you manage that risk when you when you're looking at, 3,000, 5,000 units or something like that? 
we we exercise the the pre-order model uh, to a lot of degrees. Uh, so, you know, there, there's a lot of things you just don't know about audiences too, and and there needs to be some some bit of discovery there. Uh, sometimes you can make bets and and know that you have an audience baked in. Uh, you know, through through history, we've collected a lot of data on sales that not personal data. I just mean like we can look at historic sales <laughs> and. Uh, and identify like what might do well, what might not do well. Um, but the thing that we we decided as a business, uh, a man and I years ago, was we were not going to carry an excessive amount of inventory because what can happen is, and this is the 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 secret that no one really discusses uh, when you're when you're really thinking about making a, a product in mass is inventory is a tax liability. Inventory is like cash that's not cash. Uh, and it, it becomes an exposure in and of itself. So it's it's really important not to carry that much inventory, and it's better to replenish than it is to just have a stockpile of things. Uh, and so therefore, you just have to look at things a little differently, and you have to look at things uh, from lower quantities. Even though it's cheaper to produce 50,000 of something, it's much smarter to produce a couple thousand of something and then produce a couple thousand more of something and produce a couple thousand more of something in, in success and demand. Uh, otherwise you, you lose your shirt and you know, you take a bath and you can lose your business ultimately if you overproduce stuff. And, you know, we've, we've seen any developers that uh, produce their own merchandise uh, make those mistakes because you, you get suckered in by manufacturers to be like, oh, well, if you add a couple thousand more, we can shave off a dollar or two. But it's like at the end of the day, like what does that dollar or two work to you if you're sitting on thousands of extra units you can't sell versus like spending a couple extra bucks, but selling through the whole mm. inventory? Uh, from our perspective, it's much better to sell out of something uh, and then bring it back by popular demand than it is to just infinitely make something available because you just wanted to get a really good deal. Yeah. Uh, you might end up, you might end up having to bury some stuff in the desert if you were. Uh... I mean, ET is uh, the choice example of uh, just getting it over your head. You know, like thinking and and thinking you have a crystal ball to to tell you what the future looks like in terms of success and sales and and the fact of the matter is no one can predict the future of anything selling. You can do your best in an educated way to say like, hey, we can look at the historics of what we did here. We can draw comps on on certain titles. This game is like this game. But the reality is like it's it's zeitgeist. It's it's human attraction and instinct and opinion and anything that happened in the world at any moment. Uh, we had a global pandemic start last year, uh, or not last year, but a year and a half ago that spawned into this thing that could have taken down the entire retail industry uh, and, and dramatically shifted how people you know buy things and interact with stuff. Uh, and it did, but it didn't take it down. It just adjusted perspective and, you know, like, we have a, a very lovely business advisor. Uh, his name is Norm. Uh, and he years ago said anything could happen. Like literally anything could happen. So like, just don't take it for granted and like, you know, plan for the future, but also, you know, look at the now. And, you know, he was right. And, and that's what we're always trying to do is like, we're trying to think ahead, but we're also giving ourselves enough pivot point that we can react uh, when things are important. You don't want to get too far ahead 
because then, you know, things can occur that you can't, you know, you can't shift. No, no. Well, I'm, I'm very conscious of time now. Um, <laughs> but I'll ask, I'll ask you two, two quick questions then to, to round up. The first one is, what does the future hold for all of this? Which is a really horrible, quick question. It's a huge question. Um, <laughs> but what, what, what's the future hold for physical product in, in your view, based on your experience? It, we, we think it's super bright. Like the, the future for physical goods is, it, it is akin to something I said earlier, where you know people, when they go to a concert or travel to a foreign country or go to a theme park and they have a wonderful experience, they, the human compulsion is to, to acquire an artifact that reminds you of that thing, to basically put that memory into a physical, tangible object. Uh, that's what's happening with games. And you've seen that trajectory for the last few years now where merchandise and the proliferation of, of things uh, related to any particular game that you might like uh, is because people are visiting worlds. They're being introduced to characters and exploring narratives and getting emotionally attached. Uh, and when you're emotionally attached to something, you want to you wanna clock that thing. You want a memento. You want to, much like you go to France, you might buy a refrigerator magnet uh, to remind you of the Eiffel Tower. Uh, same thing is true of going to Hyrule or, you know, going to, uh, you know, visit Sonic the Hedgehog or hanging out with Donkey Kong. Like what, what Ori in the Blind Forest and Ori in the Will of the Wisps. It's a it's a magical forest uh, in which you meet these animal friends, uh, which sounds silly when I say it like that, but you know, you spend 12, 20 hours in this world uh, and you experience life and death and, uh, you know, chaos and thrills and, and uh, you get that whole swirl uh, and you come out of it and you're like, all of a sudden that theme song, that music has much more significance to you than, you know, you did going into the first hour. Uh, and, you know, there's artifacts, there's symbols, there's, there's an interior language that is meaningful to you. And, and that's true for most games. So, you know, physical merchandise is about the emotional connection more than anything else. Uh, and if games continue to provoke and instill that kind of experience and, and games are only getting better at it, uh, you're just going to see more and more stuff that people want uh, as a result of that. And, and I, I think it's important to attach that to like, you don't just want to make merch to make merch. You want to make merch that actually feels like you're bottling up some of that emotion and reminding people of those experiences. And, and that's the powerful stuff. That's brilliant. I do apologize. My kid's toy is just playing by itself in the corner of the room. So I don't know if you could hear any of that, but I'm no, very dis- I can, I'm, but very haunting. Yeah. I'm, I'm a little disturbed. Um, that, doing it again um there's the um uh you're, you're branching out into new areas. i'll ask a final question uh you're branching out into newer areas such as publishing how how is that all going uh you know for us it's uh it's, it's going great first of all uh and for us it was it wasn't something that we we initially thought we wanted to do uh, and we've been talking about it for years and, and when Amanda and I had gotten to these discussions or, you know, friends would ask why or, or business colleagues, partners would ask like, oh, why doesn't I make it publish games? Uh, we just didn't really understand like what our POV was, like what is our perspective on it? Uh, you know, there's a, a lot of other people that we work with and partner with that do it really well and they all have a perspective. Uh, and we didn't want to just replicate someone else's point of view. Like we wanted to have our own. And suddenly 
it all kind of clicked in the last like year or so. Uh, and Ori and the Will of the Wisps was, you know, the first time it was like, oh, wow, we, we have an opportunity to do special things if we can kind of congeal all of these things together and create a relationship uh, between digital and physical and, and bridge that gap. Uh, and what we started to realize was uh, it was taking taking people's relationship with with digital things and manifesting them into physical ways that when you can when you can uh, dance with the whole ecosystem and it's not like fragmented or separated, uh, the opportunities are much more vast uh, and you can think about them much farther in advance. So what what games we're publishing uh, in the future are all kind of related to that experience, like uh, the experience humans have together in spaces, doing things, interacting with things, uh, transferring those those experiences into the digital landscape and then like pulling them back out into the physical landscape and, and creating this kind of beautiful cadence and relationship. Uh, that sounds really abstract, but at the end of the day, like that, that's the kind of stuff that makes us happy. Uh, and it, and it's an experience that's unique to us because we produce events. We, we appreciate the tactile and tangible, uh, and in the, the, the chaos of the pandemic, uh, that whole business line, was stripped from us, uh, not just from a financial sense, but from a, a, a human experience and like satisfaction sense. And so we started really thinking deeply about how do we, how do we bring that back into people's lives when they can't have those things tangibly? Uh, and so that's the kind of stuff we're coming out with in the next couple of years. Uh, and we're really excited about it. <laughs> I'm, weak, so I'm, I'm excited to hear about it. Um, uh, but I'll have to put, I have to stop it there before the toy starts singing again. <laughs> I'm going to wrap things up. Thank you so much, John. Thank you. It's been a oh, pleasure yeah. having you on at GI Live Online. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next Friday with another GI Live Online session. I've got a couple more to deliver to you. In the meantime, you can find all our previous sessions and the Game Developer Playlist, our Five Games Of series, and our regular new show on the podcasting platform of your choice. They are all on the same feed. We'll be back on Monday with your regular news show. And in the meantime, you can get more insight, news, and analysis into the world behind video games at gamesindustry.biz. Music